Welcome to Pivot, a podcast for church leaders, co-sponsored by Luther Seminary's Faith Lead and Lead. Welcome to Pivot, where today's episode is Exhausted in the Wilderness. I'm Terry Elton from Luther Seminary. I'm Scott Cormode from Fuller Seminary. And I'm Louise Johnson, and I work with LEAD. You know, the other day, I had just a, a great conversation with a bishop who was incredibly insightful about the time we were in, and I asked her to talk a little bit about what she was learning and hearing from working with her, the leaders in her particular synod, and she started to talk about how You know, when we started into this COVID business, into quarantine and so on, that none of us imagined that it would be going on this long. We thought maybe we'd be into May or June. um, And this is when we were back in March. And so we started a whole bunch of things that were meant to go for eight or 10 weeks. And now we're, of course, into July. And she was just talking about all the pastors who had started with daily devotions and who had, you know, for one reason or another, made decisions about their ministry that just took into account that this would be a short-term thing. But now that they're well into July and particularly solo pastors and most of the pastors in her Senate are particularly solo pastors that are trying to crank out a devotion every day and a, a sermon on the weekend while negotiating all of this. She just talked about how exhausted they were and that they're, you know, that it just bit into their ability to be creative at all. And now they're not knowing just kind of how to manage that particular situation. And, and, and you know, like she said, and we all know and feel they're just exhausted and you know, I was talking to uh, another pastor friend of mine who said, you know, we're in the kind of exhaustion, just the kind of tired that no nap is going to fix. It's that kind of tired. That really rings true for me, Louise. I, the last few days, I've been thinking a lot about one big question. It's what does Sabbath look like for me when I'm locked in my house? I know I need Sabbath. But all the habits I've, re- I've developed require me to do things that I can't do when I'm shackled in place. Now, I know it's actually technically called sheltering in place, but it feels a bit like shackled in place at this point. That I, I have all these habits of restorative practices, but they require me to get out of the space that I am in, and I just don't know how to do it. It feels like I'm living in a different land. Terry, I know you wrote a book on leading God's people in the wilderness. It seems like it was anticipating such a time as this. You know, it's really scary to read your own words in a different context and have them speak right to you. Like here's literally a quote. It says, identify wilderness time in your life. What was it like being isolated in untamed territory? And I'm like, ah, literally those words have really challenged me. You know, what does it mean to live when you're out of control or in uncertainty? And I feel like that's exactly what life has been like, both in my personal journey, as you talked, Scott, and Louise, as you talked about navigating ministry and teaching and leading the church in such times. So I went back and I said, maybe my own thinking at that was actually helpful. So here's here's four things that have helped me think about 
what it is to live and uh, in this isolated, untamed territory. Wilderness environments are unruly. And what some of us have been in the wilderness, I think of the Boundary Waters in Minnesota, for example, and being remote, being in places where I can't just pick up the telephone or drive to the grocery store and pick up something. They're, they're isolated. They're uncivilized in the sense that there's more creatures there than there are humans. I feel often alone, and some of that is what draws me there, but some of that can be scary if there's you know a variety of things that hit me that I'm not prepared for. So just remembering that wilderness is unruly, but also that Jesus was led into the wilderness by the Spirit. Not only that, God led the Israelites into the wilderness. And that lesson reminded me that maybe God's involved in wilderness times. It's not just human things that create wilderness times. And it widened my imagination about embracing or at least not resisting the wilderness times in my life. And then opening myself to believe if God led me, Jesus, the Israelites into the wilderness, maybe God can use wilderness times for God's purposes. So what does that mean for me? The third thing is to remember every time I've been in wilderness periods, they've been formative and Jesus going into the wilderness was no different. Jesus went into the wilderness right after being baptized, after being named the son of God. And there Jesus was tested, was hungry, and was in prayer. During this time, this formation was about who am I as a fully divine, fully human? And what does that mean for me? My identity is always challenged when I'm in wilderness times. And then Jesus embraced some particular practices. For him, prayer and resisting temptation were two of them. For me, that challenges kind of, Scott, what you were saying. What are the practices that are really going to be critical for me in wilderness times? And then finally, wilderness times create an opportunity to look backwards and forwards. In the story of Jesus in the wilderness, it clearly models the Israelites going into the wilderness, but it also sets up Jesus' mission and our mission to go into the world and to love God and our neighbor, as we talked about last week. So those four things are really sitting on me in a new way now that I have been thrown into a wilderness time. All right, that's great stuff. I really appreciate that. I want to go back to to what you were talking about in terms of identity. And of course, as you mentioned, Jesus' identity was secured and just made public, right? When, when before the wilderness, when he comes up out of the waters of baptism and God claims him as, as his beloved. And so Jesus goes into the wilderness with that identity. And then of course, after 40 days of hunger in the wilderness, the devil begins to tempt him. And so I, I think that's, it's really interesting that what the devil goes after is Jesus identity. So, I mean, every temptation begins with, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, that's the, the sort of refrain that the devil keeps invoking, no matter the temptation. So at some level, it's always a, a temptation to our identity. And I think about where so many pastors are right now, and they're they're exhausted, right? Their hungers are uh, growing and great. Hunger for community, hunger for stability, hunger for 
certainty, hunger for some handle on the time we're in, just these hungers that seem to overwhelm us. And then I keep hearing so many pastors saying to me, I just don't know if I have this in me anymore. I don't know if I could do this. I don't know if I'm even called to be a pastor anymore. And it seems to me that there's kind of deep resonance with that text that, that the temptations now in the wilderness are temptation to our identity, to our calling, and just these deep hungers to know where we'll find the energy to keep on going, the capacity to do that. So I think that's one of the big questions that's looming for us in very real ways. As you're talking, I keep thinking about how exhausting the wilderness is because we have to create a new path. We all think we know how to get from here to there, but so much of the wilderness is about a new path, and it's easy to misunderstand. It makes me think of a a story that happened very early in my career. I was a brand new professor, and uh, this is back in the day, it's going to sound so quaint, where People would call and they would leave messages and then somebody would write them on a piece of pink paper and these little message notes and then they would leave them in your box. It all feels so 19th century. And one day I went and I pulled a message out of my box and it said, Kathy called, K-A-T-H-Y, Kathy called. And I thought, well, okay. And I went back to my office and we had a professor at the school whose first name was Kathy. And so I called her and I said, what's up? And she goes, I didn't call you. We had another professor named Kathleen, so I tried calling her. No, no, that wasn't right. I couldn't figure out what was going on. So finally, I went back and I talked to the woman who took the message, and I said, can you tell me anything more about this? And she said, well, she said something about Melissa. And I'm like, oh, Kathy is my sister. But the problem is Kathy spells her name C-A-T-H-Y. And so from the first moment I saw the message, I started going down a path, and that path said, look for all the Cathy's that you know that begin with a K, and I just kept looking for that, and I didn't go back and re-examine whether I'd gotten on the right path. I kept trying to make the same path work, and when I think about the various kinds of practices that we have been given by God, things like Sabbath, what we're just talking about. We keep trying to make the same path work. Now, on the one hand, once upon a time, we would have described Sabbath as simply a, uh, a day of rest. My definition of Sabbath is a healthy rhythm of labor and rest. This particularly works for people who are working on what we would call the Sabbath. But in the olden days, say four months ago, we used to use time and space to segment a Sabbath. I mean, we just say, okay, we can set aside a time, we can set aside a space, and it could be in a different place and a different way of doing things. My work is laid out on a table in a bedroom right now. The workspace and my living space are the same space. It's all collapsed together. I need to go back to some very basic questions and ask, am I walking? I, I can't just say I've got to make it work on the path that I'm on. I'm going to have to rethink what Sabbath means. And I know, Louise, you, you, you've been reading a lot about Sabbath. So tell us a little bit about what you've been thinking about that. 
Yeah, I really appreciate that, Scott. I, I too had some practices connected to Sabbath and and realizing like you that that the mental maps that I have had aren't, they're just not working. And so um, I've just been going back and what does Sabbath have to teach us about the time we're in and how do we reframe and reinterpret the practices? So I've been reading again, the, uh, a little book called Sabbath by Abraham Joshua Heschel. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. It's a great book that really helps you kind of reframe and rethink what Sabbath looks like. And I'd love to just share a quote that's just spoken a lot to me in these days. And Heschel says this, out of the days through which we fight and from whose ugliness we ache, we look to the Sabbath as our homeland as our source and destination. It is a day in which we abandon our plebeian pursuits and reclaim our authentic state, in which we may partake of a blessedness in which we are what we are. Regardless of whether we are learned or not, of whether our career is a success or failure, it is a day of independence of social conditions. And what I love about that is that it helps me remember that this isn't just about time apart or time away, but what is that time? And how does it, how does the, Heschel would say that, that the Sabbath beckons us like a lover. It invites us into a different way of thinking about who we are, one that's far apart from the world and from the, the kind of busyness that we are typically about trying to figure out how to, how to justify our jobs and how to make everything work and figure out what's going around us, but that the, the Sabbath then becomes an invitation to remember who we are. So there's that identity piece again. I'm wondering, as we're exhausted in the wilderness, if the pivot is maybe twofold. One is opening our imagination to saying, you know, we weren't forced into this, but maybe God led us in here. And then if God led us in here, what are the tools that are available to us to be who God created us to be in the wilderness? You both have reminded us to say, you know, what if we just have to rethink Sabbath? I know for me, working in a congregation right now, I kind of like the three weeks that we record worship on Friday mornings and Sunday morning. I don't have to show up in my clergy shirt someplace, or I don't have to, you know, be preparing a sermon that's already done and I get to experience it, but it's more than that, right? It's the sense of what is Sabbath actually mean for us that brings us into our time with God and to let go. I love a day of independence of the social conditions that just that line uh, that you said, Louise really stuck with me. I also think of one of the tools for me in wilderness that's become so critical, and it goes back to Jesus in the wilderness, is what does prayer look like for me in these times? I'm so often wanting to pray for a particular outcome as opposed to God be with me in the journey, right? Give me patience for today. Give me uh, an opportunity to help someone, a meaningful conversation give me rest. And God, speak to me. Have your grace be abundant to me. There's all kinds of new kinds of prayers that, at least for me, have taken on new meaning during this time of the wilderness. 
When I think about tools for the wilderness, I again go back to, to Jesus in the wilderness. And one of the things that has always struck me is the fact that the devil too uses scripture. So even when he is tempting Jesus to betray his identity, he picks up quotes of scripture. And then Jesus' response to the devil is always scripture as well. So there's a kind of there's a kind of battle here going on with scripture. And one of the things that occurs to me in this is that we do well to have a deep and abiding sense of scripture, to have it written on our hearts, so to speak, and to have um, to have it deeply embedded, to have it be our kind of constant companion in the wilderness, because it becomes such an important tool, particularly in times of hunger and temptation. So I, I the people who work with me know, and they probably get tired of hearing me say it, but I just say to everybody all the time, have your nose in scripture. That's the best tool that I can give you for negotiating difficult leadership situations is to be engaged with scripture. And of course, so many people with whom I work are incredibly busy people that high demand on their time and so on and so forth. And so I say to them what my mentor said to me, to busy people, give God the time you don't think you have and watch what God will do with it. And I've really found that to be true, that when I take time out to really be engaged in scripture, that the word does not return empty, but instead it accomplishes that which God sent it for. And the other tool I think about in the wilderness is, is manna. And I think the reason that that comes to mind is because, you know, like most people, I've become a person who has, you know, subscribed into the practices of kind of building for the future. So, you know, I have car insurance and renter's insurance, and I have a savings account, and I have a, a retirement account, and so on and so forth. And I've been storing up a lot for the future. But of course, in the wilderness, when God sends manna to feed the people on their journey, he doesn't allow them to collect it or keep it and in fact, um, it goes bad or it disappears. I mean, there's all these stories about what happens to the manna. But the invitation is to let, to let today be enough, to let God's provision for today be enough, and to not worry about tomorrow, but instead to rest and to rise again and to expect that God will give us what we need. And so I think a lot about that in this time of wilderness, you know, enough energy, enough time, enough wisdom, enough whatever for the day. But what does it look like to be in the wilderness and expect that God will give us enough for the day? Louise, when you're talking about manna, it makes me think of when Walter Brueggemann was writing, he would talk about how uh, he talked about scarcity and abundance. He's got this wonderful little piece you can find on the internet called um, Myths of Scarcity and Liturgies of Abundance. And what he talks about is manna, and he says that God had provided enough. The key word in everything there is enough. God had provided enough for today, but not enough to feel independent of God. And we want enough to be independent of God, not enough just for today. And so what we end up doing is taking God's abundance and treating it like it's scarcity. And it takes a discipline, it takes a kind of spiritual practice to focus on the abundance of God. And so let's look back on what we've done so far today. 
We've talked about rethinking practices as tools for the wilderness. We talked about rethinking Sabbath. We talked about rethinking prayer. We talked about rethinking scripture. Uh, in a previous podcast, we talked about rethinking lament. In a future Pride podcast, we'll talk about rethinking hospitality. But the common theme here is that we over and over again are being invited by God to rethink the things that God calls us to do, to rethink our practices. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for this episode of our Pivot podcast. For more leadership resources from LEAD, you can go to waytolead.org or from Faith Lead, go to faithlead.luthersem.edu. Thank you.